So you can open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. And the reason why I picked this is because we're going through Judges actually in Sunday school right now. And I haven't really read Judges a ton. It's not a book you usually come to. But after looking at uh, the account of, of Micah and the Danites, it kind of stuck out to me. And I thought it would be, it's very applicable for today. So that's kind of what we're going to look at. Just to give a little bit of context, this is one of the last sections of the book of, of Judges. It's located right after Samson, and it's really more of an appendix to the book, because at this point we're done with the, the Judges. But what's confusing is the uh, events of chapter 17 and 18, and really 19 and 20, they most likely take place before uh, Samson, because Judges 18 mentions uh, Jonathan, who's most likely the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And then Judges 20 mentions uh, Phineas, who's the grandson son of Aaron, who was the high priest. So that makes it seem like this happened shortly after the death of Joshua. And so just to uh, start it, I'll read the first six verses of Judges 17. It begins like this. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here's the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made it into a carved image and a molded image. And they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So just... Those first six verses, uh, we're going to look through chapter 17 and 18 because you kind of need to. Um, Mainly for my notes, I've been looking at Matthew Henry, uh, Barnes Notes, Pulpit Commentary. So that's kind of where I'm pulling things from. Uh, It starts out, the the word uh, Micah, which we also know as a minor prophet in the Old Testament, the name means who is there like the Lord. And as we read this account, he does not live up to his name. Uh, Verse 2 starts with Micah. He fesses up to his mother. He stole a large sum of money. 1,100 shekels is about 28 pounds of silver. So that's probably a very large portion of her mom's uh, savings. And it sounds like he heard the curse that his mother put on it. He was probably standing right there. And so motivated by that, he gives back the money which he stole. And once he returns it, he's actually blessed by his mother And so in a way, the previous curse is is canceled. So in verse 3, it says, So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord. Now, if we stop there, there's really nothing that is striking. Uh, It seems like the intentions are right. His mother is forgiving her son, and she's doing an honorable thing, which is to dedicate this money to to the Lord. And even the name for Lord is Jehovah. So this would be the same name that Joshua would have just charged uh, Israel to, to, to follow. 
in the same name that Moses would have used and Abraham. So there's nothing really that sticks out at this point. However, once we continue and read the rest of the verse, it's for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Um, that's when the red flag comes up because clearly we, would, we know that God would never approve of someone to make an idol or carved image of him, himself. I mean, that's the basic Ten Commandments back in, in Exodus. Now, the words that are used here for carved image and molded image are pestle and maseka, and they're used to describe carved and molten images, and possibly the idea is here that they would carve a base and then put uh, the metal on the outside of it, Maybe that's what they're talking about here. Uh, Either way, he returns the silver to his mother, and then his mother takes 200 of the shekels and gives it to the silversmith. Now, it's interesting. We don't really know what happened to the other 900 uh, shekels that she was supposed to dedicate, so maybe she gave them in a different way, or maybe she just kept them for herself. We don't exactly know. But the silversmith is the one who produces the idol or idols, and then eventually they go into Micah's house. And household, household idols, the word for that is teraphim. And these were very common in the pagan world. And obviously they could represent the wealth of the family because that's a lot of money to stick in an idol. And they also represent the inheritance and the protection that the family would have had from, from their god. And if you think about household idols, there's an account in Genesis 39 when Laban has household idols. And when Jacob comes to get Rachel, Rachel steals them. Eventually, well, it doesn't turn out very well, but he had the household idols too. So probably Abraham had them and his uh, parents and that whole area over there. And then in 2 Kings 23... After Josiah, who's who turns out to be a good king, he finds these scriptures, he un- uncovers them, he orders that all the household idols are to be put away so that they might perform the words that are in the Bible and in the law. So household idols are really nothing new, and they've plagued Israel before this point and after this point. And even in this world today, we still see a ton of idols, uh, especially in the East, in places like India and China, um, but even in the West now, they're becoming much more common with people having things like Krishna or Buddha in their house or Mary in our area here. A lot of these things, there's, there's not a whole lot that's, that's new. So this is kind of the idea that, that is being coming across here. And in verse 5, we see that Micah had a shrine. And uh, the word for shrine is actually two words, which is Bayeth Elohim. And that means house of God. So, in a way, this is going against God's instruction for where his house should have been, which was in Shiloh at this point. So, the pulpit commentary says that Micah made a house of his own invention and at his own disposal. And the message, I wouldn't really recommend reading the the message, that uh, translation all the time, but it is kind of an interesting uh, commentary. It calls it a private chapel. So, in some senses, Micah was trying to privatize something that Micah had, or that God had commanded to be a public thing. And just this week, I talked to someone who, he was kind of, his children are turning from the faith, and so he's been trying to recommend them, maybe just start a church in their own house, or just you know read read the Bible and pray. You can do it all at your own house. You don't need to actually come to church, meet with other believers. You don't need to listen to someone in a pulpit. And so we can see that that idea, it's 
not new. It, we see it here in, in Micah too. And then he also mentions an ephod, which uh, in the books of the law, like Exodus and Leviticus, this is something the priests will wear uh, on their chest. We don't know if this is so something that goes on to an idol or if maybe this is just another word for an I- idol. We do know back in Judges 8, Gideon actually made an ephod. He, he was able to de- uh, defeat the, the Midianites and all that, but afterwards he unfortunately made an ephod, and, and that became a snare to the children of, of Israel too. And so we don't know exactly what it means by ephod, but it's, it's not good. And then finally, he makes his son a priest, and obviously that goes against the clear instructions that God had for priests. Uh, first of all, I don't think his son was a, a, a Levite. So we'll see throughout these two chapters, there's either ignorance or just complete lack uh, and disobedience towards God's word. And so we get to verse 6. In those days, there, were, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is kind of the chorus of the book of Joshua. We see this over and over and over again. And it's a reminder of the fallen nature of humanity and the depravity. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, no one can do wrong. So um, we may think we live in a postmodern world today, and, and we do, but it's not a new thing. This was going on in Micah's day too. And... Uh, it's obviously a reminder that we need the Messiah. I think the whole book of Judges is pointing towards the fact that they need a king. And even when Israel gets a king, they still need one that's perfect. So even David or Solomon, they just don't quite fit the bill. And so this is a sharp contrast with what Moses told Israel back in Exodus 15, uh, verse 26, where he says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. So we see these people are doing what's right in their own eyes. But Moses, back in Exodus, he was saying do what's right in God's eyes. So we see that that contrast. Um, Are there any questions before we go on to introduce the Levite? Okay. So, verses 7 through 11, we're introduced to another person, and for now, his name is the Levite. And he's a young priest, and he's from Bethlehem. And he arrives at Micah's house. He's looking for a place to stay. And this is kind of interesting because in the book of Joshua, chapter 21, God already gives the Levites uh, 48 uh, cities that they were supposed to live in and serve in. And so we don't know why the priest wasn't already in one of those cities. He might have been discontent with his uh, situation and maybe looking for something else. Or maybe at this point in time, the priests were just neglected so much, he had no choice but to leave and go to find uh, somewhere else. Whatever the case is, Micah offers this young priest 10 pieces of silver a year. And that's about four ounces. He offers some clothes, maintenance to the Levite, He wants him to become his own priest. And this is also different, of course, than the way God planned priests to be taken care of. Back in Numbers 18, um, he gives specific instructions for how there's to be provided food for and clothing. And this is just, it deviates from from that. Um, Of course, the priest agrees to the arrangement. And it says that he becomes as if he was one of Micah's sons. So not only is he a priest, but it seems like he kind of he builds a good uh, relationship with Micah and his family. 
And if the priest was truly looking out for God and serving God, this would have been a great opportunity for him to rebuke Micah for serving the idols and all the other issues that we see in in his house. But unfortunately, he doesn't exactly uh, do that. And so the Levite becomes Micah's priest. And he comes into the house, and Micah is the one who consecrates him. So right off the bat, we see that Micah, he's on the top of the pyramid. Below him is the priest. Below him is the gods. He made the gods, or he at least funded them to, uh, to be made. And so we see Micah is at the top. And it's almost as if um, we read in verse 13 that Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as a priest. So before, he only had a son as a priest. Maybe he knew, I should have a Levite. I'd probably gain a little bit more standing if I had one of those. And now he does. So it's almost as if he's viewing this priest as maybe a good luck charm or some kind of idol. And idols can be people, too. I mean, we can't forget that it's not just an object. It can be a person or an occupation or whatever. So, yeah, it's almost like maybe the priest is just another idol he's going to stick in his house. And again, in verse 13, Micah does use the right name for Lord, Jehovah, but again, we see the wrong heart and practice. So obviously, Micah does not understand the purpose of a priest and what it's supposed to be pointing to. And so we're going to jump now to Judges chapter 18. And here we see idolatry is creeping into a tribe of Israel. So chapter 17, we saw idolatry creeping into a person and then creeping into a priest. And now it's going to creep into the tribe of Dan. And the reason why I say creeping is because this is shortly after the death of Joshua. So it's not like they're outright worshiping Baal or Ashtoreth. They are using the right name, but they're mixing in idols and some of these pagan practices. So it's kind of nothing happens overnight. And I don't think going to a false god happens overnight. So we kind of see here a snapshot of their progression towards more of the, de- the depravity we see in other, event- in other events in the book of, of Judges. And so in verse 1 it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance. Um, so we see the course. First of all, it's repeated again. There's still no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And then we see, just like the Levite, the Danites are also seeking for an inheritance. They're seeking for a place to, to, to live and to, and to dwell. And this might also be a question to us because we might think, well, didn't God already promise the Danites a portion of the land? I mean, surely they were included, right? Well, and they actually were. So in Joshua 19, verses 40 through 46 we see that Dan was indeed already allotted a land. And it would have been between Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south. So kind of where I wrote Dan, it's around there. Ephraim's up here and Judah is, is down there. So they were kind of already allotted that, that land. And in verse 47, Dan is described as losing some or all of its territory. And part of that is because of the enemies that were there. They were not able to drive all of them out. And we see this happen with other tribes, too. So if we look at Judges 1, verse 34, it gives a little bit more insight, and it says that the Amorites, also known as the Philistines, they pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. So Dan was not able to secure all their land like they were uh, uh, supposed to. 
But it is interesting because if you go just one verse further, in verse 35, it mentions that the tribe of Joseph, eventually they were able to put down the Amorites and actually put them into bondage. So Dan was much larger than Joseph. They were second uh, largest next to Judah, probably about 60,000 men. So the problem probably wasn't with the Amorites. It was probably with the tribe of Dan. And so possibly many commentators say they didn't have enough obedience and trust in God because some of these these enemies, they had chariots of iron, they had really great weapons and maybe superior uh, numbers, but that's never been a problem for, for God. It doesn't matter what they have. If you have God on, on your side, you will prevail. And so maybe there wasn't enough trust and faith. Whatever the reason, this, their spiritual weakness turned into uh, weakness at war. And it's too bad because a lot of commentators, like Arthur Lewis does a good job, he mentioned that the coastal cities like Joppa, and then this plain was very uh, fertile. They would have been really great a- assets to to the nation of, of Israel, but they were not able to uh, take this 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 land though. And so, verse two, they need to come up with a solution to get more land. They need to find a place to dwell in, and so they send five men of their family as spies to go spy out some distant lands. And there's no mention of God, so they don't really inquire of God. They just send their men. They take it, the matters into their own hands. And eventually, they must pass through the house of Micah, and they end up lodging there. And it says, they recognize the voice of the young Levite. And so, of course, they turn to him, and they say, who brought you here? What are you doing? This doesn't really make any sense. Maybe it was strange seeing a Levite serving in someone's house, because a Levite should be in the temple or, you know, probably an more elevated uh, position in, in society. And so the priest says, well, Micah hired me, and so I became his priest, and he kind of gives the backstory. And so the Danite spies, maybe seeing this as an opportunity, they say, since you're a priest, can you inquire God that we may know whether the journey we will go on will be prosperous? And so it's almost like they want a fortune from this priest, and so, of course, the priest agrees, and it doesn't really say he consults with God, but he does tell them what they want to hear, and he says that their journey will be prosperous, and that Jehovah is watching over them on their journey. And we can fall into this trap, too, sometimes, because we can just, you know, do something and say, okay, God, bless what I'm doing. But the more appropriate thing to do in this situation would be, are we doing the, are we doing, uh, the Lord's will? Or is this going to be prosperous in God's eyes? So I think it's, we can just look at that, and I think we can easily see ourselves at times. But whatever the case is, um, if Dan really wanted to be prosperous, if that tribe did, then they would have just followed God in the, the beginning. And I know that's easy to say. It's, we can see Israel, of course, it's, it's us. It's a mere I- image of us. But that's how they would have been prosperous in God's eyes at the first time. Er, in the first place. And so what happens is the spies leave and they go up to the, the city of Laish. And just to give a little bit of context, the spies, they probably started down here in Zorah. And we don't know exactly, exactly where Micah's house is. We just know it's in the mountains of uh, Ephraim, which is around this general area. So they're probably going up here, and then Laish is just above the Sea of Galilee. So that's kind of the 
the direction that they're taking, and it's over 100 miles, so it's kind of a journey. And so they go up there, and they find out that the city of Laish is quiet and secure. There's no ties with anyone. They, no one will come to their aid if they're attacked, so they like that. And then we see also that there's no one to put them to shame for anything. So there's not an oppressor there. And, you know, in this uh, situation, they can be in charge of themselves. The, the people of Dan, I don't think they were really looking for someone to watch over them. Because that's also kind of far from Shiloh and some of the more important uh, cities in, in Israel. So it's apparent they're kind of looking to maybe be on the outskirts. And so the spies, they return they come back to their tribe and they give a favorable report. They say, indeed, the land is very good. And they claim God has given it to them. And it's interesting that when they say very good in verse 9, indeed it is very good, that's the same phrase we see in Genesis 1, 31. When God's finished with resting and creation, he says, indeed, what I have made is very good. Just kind of an interesting thing that popped into my mind. Um, so they stir up the men and they send 600 men of the family of the, the Danites. So maybe that was about 10% or so, but uh, it says that they went up there armed with weapons of war, so these are pretty strong men, and they're basically going to make the same journey with the goal being the city of La- Laish. And so we, we see them traveling, and as they get close to Micah's house, the, the spies, they recognize it, And they tell these 600 men in verse 14, do you know that that there are in these houses, they're talking about the houses of Micah, an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image. So they know what's in there. And then they say, now therefore, consider what you should do. So it's almost like, hmm, a pause. Let's think about what we should do here. There's a house full of idols. And so... We, you know, we, of course, would think of many verses in the Old Testament that tell us what to do with idols. And especially the Israelites, as they're trying to conquer the, the land of Canaan, they had pretty clear instruction of what to do with these. And so it's really a moment, do we choose to follow God or do we choose to follow ourselves? And just one verse I think is helpful is Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 4, where God tells Israel, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. So just that verse alone, it's pretty clear what God feels about idols. And, you know, probably what they should have done is just destroyed Micah and his house and moved on. But, of course, that's not what what happens. It says in verse, uh, let's see, 15, So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah. So, just like the Levite, he's talking to Micah and he chooses, okay, I'll do this. He goes into the house of Micah. Well, these Danites, they... They stop, and they also go into the house of Micah. It's almost as if they're yielding. And so the spies, they take the carved images, the ephods, the idols, the molded images. 
So not only, I mean, they, they, were, they were stealing the, these things, but not only did they have the religious uh, sig- uh, significance, but they also were probably worth a large sum of, of money. And so as they're stealing them, the priest is the one who actually stops them. And he, he says, what's going on here? What, why are you stealing this stuff? And so the Danites say to him, be quiet, put your hand over your mouth and come with us. So they basically want the Levite to become their priest. And they're, so what they're going to do is bribe him. And we see here that they make a good point. Was it better for you, in verse uh, 19, is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you may be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And so it's a valid point. If the priest is worried about money and power and fame, it makes sense. Becky? Yeah, exactly. He'd, he'd be a fool to not take up this, uh, this offer. <clears throat> In verse 20, we see his heart was glad. And so he takes the idols with him, and it says he takes his place among the people. So the priest is moving up. And then the Danites, they turn, and they continue on their journey to Laish. And they did put all their children, and it says their livestock and little ones in the front, so I think they knew maybe Micah was going to be mad about this. And sure enough, Micah, he comes up and he overtakes him. He does. He also gathers his neighbors, so maybe his neighbors were using the same priests or maybe his idols. Hard to say, but whatever the case is, the neighbors are loyal to, to Micah. They overtake Dan, and they cry out to him, and Micah says... Why have you taken all my idols? In verse uh, 24, he says, You have taken away my gods, which I made. Again, Micah made his gods. So he's on the top of this pyramid here. And the priest, and you have gone away. And then Micah says, Now what more do I have? And as Christians, I think we can relate to this too. Imagine if someone could take away God from us, how how desperate we would feel. That would be as low as you can possibly get. Now, of course, no one can take away our God because our God is above us. It's not a thing of our own uh, uh, making. And no one can pluck us out of his hands. But when your God is something that you create or mold, yeah, someone can take that thing and you're left without a God. And so we can maybe get a sense for the Maybe the feelings that Micah is having right now, it's definitely not good. Um, and so Micah sees that, well, the, the children of Dan, it's a similar thing that they do to the priest. They basically tell him to put his hand over his mouth and be quiet because he says, if you're too loud, your voice may be heard among us and the angry, bitter, and fierce men may fall upon you and you may lose your life, and your family may lose your life too. So they basically tell him, you might want to keep it down because you're going to die. And so it says that Micah sees that they were too strong for him. He turns around and goes back to his house. So possibly, well, he, he probably didn't have the numbers, but on top of that, they took his gods. So they took his luck too. So he probably didn't have much of, of a chance in battling these people or trying to take, take back his stuff. Are there any questions? Okay. So we never really hear about Micah again. He's kind of out of the picture. 
And so the Danites continue on their journey. They take the things that Micah had made and the priest, and they go to Laish. And so what happens here, uh, it's the same as when they left it. It's quiet and secure, and there's no people to come to their aid. And so what happens is they strike the city with the edge of their sword, and they burn the city with fire in verse 27. In verse 28, it says, There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. So it must not have been very well defended because they took it with only 600 men. Um, and it doesn't sound like it was very hard. So they took the city, they burn it, and then eventually they rebuild the city. And then instead of Laish, they call it Dan, of course, after their forefather, which makes sense. And it says in verse 30 that the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, so they waste no time. Immediately they set up the images which they took from Micah. And then it says that Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, oh, well, sorry, to give some context, we're given the name of the Levite and the priest. His name is Jonathan, and it says that he is the son of Gershom, the son of, of Manasseh. And so a lot of Bibles have a, a postscript or a subscript in there. And some Bibles read Moses, uh, the Septuagint, Vulgate. It looks like they are translated as Moses. And that's what this is up here. So Manasseh is the top one, and Moses is the bottom one. So basically the only difference is this character right here. And so a lot of commentators suggest that later in time, some of the, the scribes would have added that extra character in because they were trying to preserve the honor of, of Moses. Um, it seems like the consensus is that this was Moses' grandson. So, I mean, we can see that we would probably do a similar thing, trying to preserve the honor of our grandfather. But whatever the case, if it is the, son, if it is the grandson of Moses, then we see here the, the start of, it's a legacy that's kind of failed in, in a way. And the same thing with the, the city of Dan. Um, at one point, Dan was a good tribe, but we see here that they've tried to take things into their own hand and build their own ho- house of God. And w- so we see, abor- unfortunately, the legacy is going downward and doesn't really get any better because we know uh, for the city of Dan, in 1 Kings twelve twenty nine, it's actually one of the cities that the evil king uh, Jeroboam, he sets up one of his golden calves here and Laish, or I guess Dan now, or then. <laughs> but, so we see that the city doesn't really have a good track record now or in the future. And unfortunately, it also says that uh, Jonathan, he's their priest, and then it continues with his children also being priests. And so um, it says that they, it seems that they were serving idols until all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh, and we'll get there in a, a second. But as Matthew Henry says, he makes a good point that children's, uh, children are not always the crown of, of old men. I think we see this for today, too, where it's, it seems like it's more common that you may have someone of the past uh, generations who is honorable and reverent. Maybe they're a Christian. And we see today, a lot of times, the grandchildren, uh, even the children, maybe it starts there, but by the time it gets to the grandchildren, we see this kind of spiral. So I think we can kind of relate to this time, too, with Micah and with the Danites. And so in verse 31, we see that it says they set 
up for themselves Micah's card image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So we see that uh, Shiloh is right around here, so it's close to Micah's house, and that's where the house of God should have been at this time. But the Danites, they make their own house of God here. And maybe it was uh, more convenient. They wouldn't have to travel all the way down to Shiloh. But whatever the case was, they still were going against the commandments and instructions that God had, had given them. And so um, this kind of issue, this doesn't seem like it uh, was resolved. And unfortunately, idol worshiping and this kind of uh, sin, it just leads to ruin. And that's kind of what happens in this uh, situation here. And so, are there any questions before I go on? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think the point is that the house of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was at Shiloh for a time. And as long as that was there, they had their idols here in Dan. And that was, in a sense, a house of God. Uh, It's also kind of interesting because in verse 30, it talks about how uh, Jonathan's sons were priests to the tribe of Dan till the day of captivity of the land. So that almost makes it seem like that's uh, the Assyrians when they took them. Um, So it's kind of, and that would have been, well, yeah, it's kind of, I think it gives maybe two uh, time frames. It gives a time frame for how long the priests were being priests there than how long they were setting up their their idols there too. So what we can learn from this is I think there's two, two main things. So the first thing is we all need to be careful with making God into something that he isn't. So just like the Micah or ju- just like uh, Micah or the Danites, we may use the right words for God, we may do the right things or say the right things, but the God that we're worshiping might be something that we formed in our own thoughts and minds. And this is surprisingly easy to do. And Uh, As Pastor mentioned last week, idolatry isn't just something around us, but it's also something inside of us. And so ultimately, it is an issue of the heart. And we see with Micah, his mother, the priest, the the Danites, it really was, it boiled down to an issue of the heart. Um, Micah's idea of God, it suited himself. He could put it in this nice little thing and and worship it. It suited himself and his own needs. But it was far from how God had revealed himself. And so today, everyone's version of God, uh, besides the Christians, is different. So if you ask one person what they think of God and another person, probably there's slight variations. Everyone has their own unique flavor of who God is and what he is. And so it's a challenge because if our idea of God contradicts his revealed word, then obviously we're wrong we need to make sure we're in check with how God has revealed himself in his word. 
And so we need to obviously rely on the word to keep us in check and examine our, ourselves. Then secondly, without a judge or a basis of truth, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So you don't need to make much of a stretch that this is exactly what's happening today. There's no basis of truth. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Uh, however, we do have a basis of truth, and again, that is the Word of God. He's revealed to us His Word, His instruction, and that's what we need to depend on, especially as Christians, because without this, we're like Micah. We don't have any gods. If we don't have the Bible, we don't have the revelation of God, and we don't know God, and we don't know His Son. So that's important. We need to make sure we cling to this and use this as our sword in this kind of, of culture. Um. And we do have a Messiah. Obviously, in Judges, they needed a Messiah. They needed Judges. Well, they didn't work. Then they needed a king. That didn't work either. So, ultimately, they need a Messiah. Well, we live in a time where the Messiah has come, and he's paid the price for our sins, and he's redeemed us if we're saved. And so, we have this Messiah, a perfect judge and king. And that brings us straight to Christ, which um, we looked at last week, that idolatry... We, this is from uh, Jeremiah two ten through 13. Idolatry, no matter what the form is, is like a broken cistern. And that verse says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, I kind of copied a lot from Pastor's notes from last week because I was thinking of this before the service, but it fits so well with it. Um, we see that Christ, he is even able to save idolaters. So even someone like Micah or that priest, the horrible things that, that they did, God can still save them. And the call of the gospel, of course, is to flee from the idolatrous things. Even if you're worshiping Jehovah, but still using idols, it's still not good. You're supposed to flee from those things and then flee to the one who is the fountain of living water. And then Christ, of course, he gives us the new cistern that holds his water. And that's what we need to be fleeing to. And we can abandon. We, our broken cisterns, they're no good. They will never hold any water. Just like Micah's gods could not save him, they just were snatched up and taken. They're useless. And so I think it's appropriate to end with the last verse of 1 John 5. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And at this point, if I were teaching the children, I'd hand out a coloring page. But I couldn't find many coloring pages on Micah, so I won't do that today. But are there any other questions? Becky? scary because you can use the right name but do the wrong things so good well if there are any questions you can see me afterwards